the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 730 for Monday, October 8th, 2018. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where we take your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found, our cool stuff found, and we mix it all together into an agenda. And from that agenda, we hope to be not only entertained, but informed in such a way that each of us learns at least five new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Text Expander. We're at textexpander.com slash podcast. You get 20% off your first year subscription and ring at ring.com slash MGG, where you can learn how to get whole home security for just 10 bucks a month. We will talk more about those two shortly here, here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How are you doing today, Mr. John F. Braun? And uh, on our beautiful take two of this podcast today, I, I love take two days. So there you go. Eh, I don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do love Everything. the fall, though. Like, this is that time of year, man, where the air starts to get crisp and cooler. And, uh, you know, it's definitely my favorite season. Uh, but, of course, it comes along with the, the new uh, allergens, fall allergens in the air. So occasionally there's that little, you know, like little headache reminder of, Hey, yep, that's right. Different season. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. You've had some craziness. Oh yeah. Oh, we had a, we had some tornadoes last week. <laughs> that's craziness for sure, man. Yeah. Along with, uh, yeah, it was a uh, weird, got a tornado watch and everything, you know, yeah. on, the, on the devices. Wow. That's crazy. That doesn't happen in Connecticut often. That's pretty crazy, man. I'm glad you made it through. Uh, I'm also glad we have this question from Jeff. Jeff wrote in and said, how can I turn these dumb text suggestions at the top off? He says, when I go to, I, on my iPhone, I pull down, I start typing in the search field. I go to tap an app I want. And just as my finger is about to hit the app, some text suggestions appear and I hit one of those instead. And he says, and I want to throw my phone against a wall. Yeah, I feel you, man. I've been there. So I started looking around. And John, if you go on your iPhone into settings and then Siri and search about uh, one page down, you will see a section called Siri suggestions. And at the top of that, at least for me, is suggestions in search. Believe it or not, that is is what's causing that text, those text fields to get populated and, uh, and drive you crazy. So if you turn them off there, then they won't appear. And it's, uh, it, I, I, I would agree that this is probably desired behavior for many of us here, Jeff. Uh, but while you're here, scroll back up to the top of the Siri and search section, and you can see that now there's a shortcut section here. And you can look into my shortcuts, which are things that you have told apps to put out there. And then there's suggested shortcuts where you can see 
all the shortcuts that would have been suggested to you over time. You can search them. You can add them to your shortcuts. So if, if you had one suggested and you decided, yeah, no, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want it at the time. And now you go back and you say, actually I do. Well, you can go in here and start manipulating these. So kind of a follow-up to last week when we were saying, I was lamenting that we didn't have control over this. There it is. So, huh? It's pretty cool, right? Actually, this is kind of disconcerting because the suggested shortcuts, it, it's like serious spying on me because it's stuff that I've done recently. There's, yeah. there's one here, view default for portfolio because, you know, I frequently trade using my phone. So Netflix price. Huh. It's, it's, um, it's not quite that serious spying on you, although I, that, like, it's very easy to think that that's exactly what's happening because that's what the results look like. But when uh, when I was talking with Corey about our Mac Geekab app, which you should go get, go get it for free. It's in the app store. It's called Mac Geekab, so you can't miss it. And then you get notifications when episodes are up and when we're in our live stream. You can even listen to the live stream right in the app. Of course, you can listen to the shows and all that stuff. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But um, if it, while we were looking at this, and when I say we, uh, I mean he, uh, was looking at this, he was telling me, oh, yeah, what you do as an app developer is you publish things to uh, to Siri and and you expose like you know someone listened to the app to listen to the latest episode right and if Siri notices that that it's getting that notification every Thursday or something it might try and uh, you know ask you hey do you want a reminder to listen to this every Thursday so because you're going and checking you know, the latest Netflix price or looking at your portfolio in, uh, you know, I assume you're, you know, your brokerage app, then whoever made that app, I think it's probably E-Trade because just because you and I know each other, uh, it pushed that notification or pushed that data from the app to Siri saying, Hey, yep, here's a thing that, uh, that this user is doing, do with it, what you, what you will offer it to them when you, when you wish. Yeah. Wow. Maybe I'll have to try that. It's pretty cool. You know, my last trade, I was using, you know, the the GUI like a caveman when I could, you know, just just speak my my wishes. <laughs> yeah, good luck. I I don't know how I'd feel about trusting Siri to initiate trades on my behalf. But um, uh, yeah, that that um Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you know, it's not that reliable. Like I, I try to get it to turn on my lights with some reliability and even that's mm -hmm. like, eh, mm, eh, not so much. So, yeah. But it, it at least cool. with the GUI, but, but at least with the GUI with their app, they actually, so you put in your wish and then you get another screen saying, are you sure you want to do this? Right. <laughs> and my guess is that that also would happen if you did, if, if in fact it were even possible to trigger it with Siri, you'd probably get some sort yeah. of confirmation. So, yeah. Uh, let's go to JP here because JP has a question for us, which is actually a pretty good question. So here we go. Let's see if I can get this to work hey, here. John, hey, Dave. It's JP listening to the show right now. It's fantastic. Uh, regarding USB-C dongles, uh, I have a quick question. Uh, I agree with the caller or the uh, listener that just bought the right cable instead of dongling his life or her life. And uh, I've, I have a dongle, uh, one dongle for each new iMac and a MacBook Pro, but, you know, I was uh, video editing and uh, a lot of media and uh, 
film and television. And when uh, Thunderbolt 2 came out, you know, I switched everything to that. And all my peripherals went to uh, T2. And, you know, I had a lot of hard drives and, you know, hard drive caddies and enclosures and stuff. And uh, yet there's no, and, uh, you know, there's no um, USB-C to Thunderbolt 2 cables out there. You have to use a, a dongle. And I'm just wondering, why is that? Why, why, and even in these docks that you get, some of them won't convert C to uh, T3 to T2. I just wonder, is it is it a licensing thing? And like Anchor wouldn't do it because that way that, that, that means they would have to license like two protocols on one wire instead of one. I'm just curious because you ne- you, it's like when Thunderbolt 2 was abandoned, they gave us a dongle, but nobody made uh, a cable end-to-end. Unless I'm totally mistaken, but I've never been able to, to find one. Anyway. No, you're, you're not mistaken, man. Uh, and, and it's a good question. Uh, there are USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 to mini DisplayPort cables, right? So same form factor as what's used for Thunderbolt 2, but certainly no USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 to Thunderbolt 2 cables because they all require something in line making them dongles. I found a great resource at Lassie in their FAQ about this, which among other things says, I will read Thunderbolt three technology is backwards compatible with Thunderbolt one and two. However, adapters are required since Thunderbolt three uses a different interface than the previous generations. Additionally, some features unique to Thunderbolt three devices, such as charging capability may not work when using adapters. Another important factor is that not all adapters are bidirectional, which means connecting adapters to Thunderbolt 3 devices may not function with Thunderbolt 2 or Thunderbolt 1 or vice versa. So, yeah, there's some smarts to do a translation between what the between the two. So, yeah, it it's it, I I think I want to say it's backwards compatible but not not directly. Perhaps that's a better way to say it. What do you, what do you think about this, John? Not much, since I don't really do any Thunderbolt work. Well, you, you can have an opinion on it without actually doing it manually yourself. Like, mm. right? You know, so there you go. Eh, the opinion is that. Why doesn't it use the Oh, you know, that I think about it. If you think about you, it, it's probably like a similar situation with USB 3 and USB 2. So yeah. That, you know, you can go one direction, but not necessarily the other. Or you need a different cable, like which is the case with USB three, right? Uh, or you need a, a different cable. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's crazy. So the price, the price of progress, the price of progress. I like it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm trying to figure out here for the next question, because it seems like mail. It's funny. Well, I, I will. How can I get there? I don't know that I can. Uh, yeah, there we are. I can find Doug's question or Doug's suggestion. So uh, I can move on to the next question, John, even though the PDF I created munged it. Doug shares a tip. We were talking about mail plugins in the last episode. And uh, and he says in Mojave now, similar to the full disk access thing that we talked about for security, mail now does the same thing with plugins. When you add a plugin to mail, and, I, and you may have noticed this, if you added a plugin 
to mail in Mojave and it did not appear, it's because you didn't give it permission yet. So you have to uh, add the plugin and then give it permission and then restart mail. What you do is you go to mail preferences and at the bottom there is on the general screen, there is now a manage plugin button or uh, thing. And then after that, you you'll see a list of the plugins that mail is aware of. Check the ones that you want to enable and uh, and then restart mail again. So an extra step now for mail plugins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which huh. is kind of cool because you could turn off a mail plugin this way without having to like rip out the components of it, not install it. It's pretty good, huh, man? Okay. Yeah, because as we discussed, yeah, so my plugins are here. I wonder if I enable them now, if they'll work. Huh. I doubt I doubt it, but uh, it's worth a shot. <laughs> well, because right? we were shaking our fist at Sig, or I was shaking my fist at Sig Pro, but it, it's on the list here along with GPG. So, uh, huh. Are you going to try it? You're not going to try it while we record, are you? That'd be dangerous. Well, I'm going to try it on my MacBook. All right, cool. Uh, Okay, I just enabled it, and guess what? Incompatible plugin yeah. disabled. Okay. <laughs> well, it was a good try. Thanks for trying, man. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we need to wait for Small Cubed again. So while we're waiting for them, let's keep doing the show. Uh, we have some tips from the last episode. Listener Brett, we were talking about uh, terminal apps for iOS, and we got a couple of suggestions from you folks. Listener Brett includes his. He says, I use one called Terminus for iOS, which, as it turns out, is a freely available terminal uh, SSH client, if you will, for uh, for the iPhone. So we will put that in the show notes for sure. Thank you so much for that, Brett. Have you uh, have you grabbed one of these yet, John, so that you can have one on your uh, on your on your phone? Because there's another one. There's another one. Okay. Uh, it's from uh, listener Mike says at the university, I have a bunch of TV kiosks running off raspberry Pis to connect to these from iOS. I use web SSH. It's a pretty decent program and allows you to save connections. You can group those connections in folders as well. It'll do SSH, SFTP, multiple windows, and even use touch ID and presumably face ID. It says, I I think it's like uh, five bucks on the app store, which it turns out it is. So just to have another option. Thanks for that, Mike. So are you using one yet, John? Um, no, I'm using the, uh, uh, I, I told you the, uh, uh, what did I? Well, you're using, you're using a remote access client, but, but no, no, terminal. not a terminal one. Yeah. yeah okay. Right. Yep. All right. Cool. 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 And, uh, you know, we were talking in a previous episode, I think it was maybe 723 or 724 about, Apple Care Plus and whether it's worth it on which devices, et cetera, for double warranty or, you know, the extra warranty protection and all that stuff. And listener Mike chimes in and says uh, here in Canada, he says, and presumably uh, in the U.S., he says a Visa Classic card provides double the manufacturer's warranty up to one extra year 
for free just for using the card. He says, this card type does not provide points of any kind for me. He says, I keep one just for my purchases that I would want to add an extended warranty to. You should check with your Visa card supplier. They do not like to advertise this fact. He says, I had a $450 display repair to my MacBook Pro done during its second year. My wife had her iPad replaced and my daughter had her iPod touch replaced all free as part of this double warranty from the credit card. He says there's a little paperwork required, of course, but obviously well worth it. So that's very cool. I always forget about those double warranty options from our credit card companies. Lots of them will offer it, but not all. So it's definitely worth checking with your card uh, provider and, and perks Mm -hmm. listed to, to see that. Yep. I, I got one recently. That's pretty cool. It's a Wells Fargo. Although they've been having a rough time as of late, <laughs> but it's a Wells Fargo Cashwise Visa signature. Okay. One reason that I wanted to get this is that they, if you pay your phone bill with it, they will warranty damage to your phone with a small deductible. Isn't that neat? Huh. Yeah, I think the terms. It's a twenty-five dollar deductible, and they'll pay for up to uh, six hundred dollars of damage. So it won't pay for the phone but it could pay for a repair right right since the phones are going for like a thousand bucks these days right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah right 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 <laughs> yeah huh so that was a nice one actually the other the other and thing you don't even is, have is, to have bought the phone with it you just need to pay your phone bill with it that's pretty good i mean obviously correct. check check the terms and conditions on all that stuff before you believe us um because you know we can't help you when you have to claim your warranty so make sure you understand it but yeah that's pretty good man yeah yeah. The other thing I like is that for the uh, for the first year, if you use that card with Apple Pay, they'll give you a couple of percentage points extra cash back. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, it was a very, very interesting uh, card. Um, yeah, it has a good mix of uh, features. Cash back, you know, the warranty coverage. Yeah. Bonus, bonus cash. I like it, man. Huh. That's pretty good. All right, I want to I have a I have a tale of woe that turns into a tale of rejoicing to tell, John. But so we pumped our fists first in anger and then in triumphantly. But before I do that and before I tell that story, I would love to tell you about our two sponsors for today. Our first sponsor is Ring. You've heard of Ring before. We've talked about them a lot. That Ring is the company that uh, really finally showed me how well smart home can work and really for me opened the floodgates uh, into, into the whole smart home thing when I first got their doorbell and floodlights that now can trigger all kinds of things in my home and around my house and all kinds of stuff. And it, I mean, it's just great. The Ring stuff is so easy to install. The out of the box experience is like an Apple experience. Everything's right there for you, right down to all the tools you will need, including like a little hook because you don't have an extra hand when you're up on a ladder, putting the the floodlight up. I mean, it's just, it's so well thought out. And now they just reinvented the home alarm system, right? We all know traditional alarm companies prioritize high monthly premiums and tie you into long-term contracts. So what did Ring do? They changed that. Ring Alarm. 
is an easy-to-install, affordable home security system with no long-term contracts. You can build the system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. And as you would expect, the Ring Alarm Security Kit comes with everything you need to protect your home and 24-7 professional monitoring is only 10 bucks a month. You got to check it out. This really is a smarter way to protect your entire home. And the Ring Alarm Security Kit is available at ring.com slash MGG and also retail stores across the U.S. So go to ring.com slash MGG to learn how you can get whole home security for just 10 bucks a month. Pretty cool stuff. Our thanks to Ring for sponsoring this episode. Our second sponsor is Text Expander. Man, if there was an app that I had that I needed on every Mac, really every device that I use, it's Text Expander. I can't live without it. I don't want to live without it. It's such a pleasure to be able to have all my little snippets. And some of them are really little. Like I have little snippets that are like my phone number. I have snippets that are entire emails that I would you know, respond to people. And I store all of these in Text Expander. And then all I do is when I want to do, say, my phone number, just on the keyboard, I just type comma C. Actually, I don't even type comma for my phone number. I, I, I have to think about it. I type C603 because my phone number is a 603 area code in C for cell phone. I know it's not technically a cell phone, but it's fine. So I had to do 0603 for my office too, right? When I type either one of those, it expands out my phone number. I do the same for all my email addresses. Let me tell you how handy it is when I'm filling out some kind of web form or something and I can just do DTMO and boom, it pops out my, you know, David Mac Observer email address. Perfect. I never have to worry about fat fingering it. I don't have to hit shift and two to get the at sign. None of it. It's all right there. And of course, like I said, you don't have to have just short things. You can do very, very long things like fully formed emails complete with form fields where you can have text expander ask you, what do you want to put in here? So when I'm telling people about what we mentioned on Mac Geek Gab, I can make sure that it automatically pastes in the link to the show, but then the product name is something I want to type in. Great. It asks me, I don't have to think it does the thinking for me and it gets it right. Every time go check this out, go to textexpandercom slash podcast. You can save 20% off your first year right there. Textexpandercom slash podcast. Our thanks to text expander and the folks at smile for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, this is going to be a little weird, right? Because uh, it's going to sound like uh, I am talking about things that aren't related to Mac to to Max. But uh, and and if you want to skip, of course, we have chapters and it's a beautiful thing. So just skip to the next chapter, right? They're there in the MP3 or the uh, enhanced AAC. Really, the enhanced AAC is is just for iTunes on the desktop now because MP3 chapters are supported everywhere. So I might get rid of the enhanced AAC. I don't know how some of you feel about that, but, um, but it, be that as it may, we have, it, it, I think our, my perspective as a Mac user might be quite relevant here. And there are some tools that I've learned about John uh, that might be shared as cool stuff found, but we have a, a, a few year old, maybe four year old windows machine laptop that we have around the house. 
it showed up doing some why it was necessary. Well, we were doing some Wi-Fi testing. I needed to be able to test uh, Moo Mimo years ago. And so great. So it's this Dell Inspiron or whatever. Uh, the kids sometimes will use it, especially as the kids laptops, like this happened with my daughter two years ago. And now with my son, he, you know, his laptop, he realized, Oh, it's, it's too slow to do the things I knew it needed to do at school. We'll get him a Mac laptop shortly here. But in the interim, he's like, can I take this windows thing? Yeah, sure. No problem. Cause all he's doing is Google Chrome and all that stuff. And then the other day it started doing some updates, John automatically. And it blew away. It, it totally made the machine completely non bootable. Uh, it would, you know, it was doing the updates. It failed at about 65% and then said, I need to restart to fix this. And then got into a loop where all it would do is restart to fix it. Now, uh, I created both a generic Windows uh, installed disk, right? Or, you know, USB stick, as well as going to Dell's website and downloading the recovery tool for this machine. Neither one of those would do anything other than this boot loop. And I thought, well, that's really weird. That to me is a Mac user means hardware problem. It's been a while since I've troubleshot Windows, right? But, you know, it's fine. So I dug into it, John. It's not a hardware problem. It's a software problem. There's a thing that's saved to your hard drive when you are a Windows user called BCD, boot configuration data. And evidently, it even screws things up booting from a USB stick if you're booting Windows. I don't know why, but Windows decides it needs to read this boot configuration data from your hard drive if it's there. If it's not there, it's totally fine. It'll go right past it. But if it's there, it, it wants to read it. And then it goes into this boot loop because it, it, if that data gets corrupted, boom, and that data can get corrupted from viruses, but it can also get corrupted during, you guessed it, automatic updates, which is exactly what happened to us. So I'm in this pickle here where it's like, dude, how do I fix this freaking boot configuration data? And so I started doing some research and I started asking around John, and this is where the perspective as a Mac user starts to really come in it to fix. This is a major, major headache. And I thought, well, okay, this sucks. Cause my son put some data on this machine. Mostly he was just using, you know, Google docs and things for his Google classroom at school, but he had recorded an interview on there for his school paper. And I thought, well, I got to get this off of there. So how do I do target disc mode with a windows computer? The rea the answer I'll tell you, doesn't exist. At least not on this one. doesn't seem to be a thing, but someone suggested something, John, and that something was using the uh, uh, making a boot disk of Ubuntu Linux, right? Or any Linux, really, but Ubuntu is an easy one. And I thought, oh, right, because if I can boot, all I need to do is boot this thing, and then I can read from the drive and save it to another USB stick. So I went about creating an Ubuntu Live, they call it an Ubuntu Live CD, but really it's not to a USB stick on my Mac. So that means downloading an ISO image and then uh, burning it to a, uh, a USB stick. Let me tell you, burning an ISO, an ISO image from your Mac to uh, a USB stick is not easily possible with disk utility. You can do it from the command line, but you'd have to convert it first to a DMG and then burn it with a, a utility called DD, which essentially just does a, a block copy um, out to the thing. So I found a utility, John, 
And this utility is called Etcher. It is built to burn ISO images to USB sticks from your Mac, and it works flawlessly. So I used this Etcher thing. It's available for free to make on my Mac laptop, you know, my whatever, you know, six, seven year old MacBook Air. No problem. Etcher worked great. Uh, it's available for every platform, but, you know, obviously I downloaded the Mac version and I burned this, this Linux live CD booted up. No problem. I mean, it took like maybe 30 seconds to boot this thing into when you're, when you're booting this, this Linux CD, you have two choices. You can try it, which just boots a one-time sort of environment that you can use. And I was able to use that. It got on Wi-Fi. It did everything. And also it saw the drive in there. And so I could copy it off, copy the data off. So I did that. And or you can choose plan B, which is install Linux on this computer. It was a really nice GUI and stuff. And so fine. We got the data off. Great problem. You know, emergency problem solved. But we still want to get this computer working. So over the next couple of days, I look into how do I repair this stupid BCD, this boot configuration data on this Windows machine. It just becomes this rat's nest and maze of you need to you have to find some way to boot it. Windows 10 wouldn't boot on this thing. As I said, you know, it saw this boot configuration data and didn't like it. And uh, I, I was talking to some of our listeners here and, and Brian Monroe is a, a Mac guy, but, you know, he's also a very active, uh, he's, a, he's an active consultant for both Macs and Windows. And uh, while I was talking to him, he's like, you know, you, you could just format the drive with, you know, boot into Linux if you don't care about the data there, which we don't because we got it off. It's like, just format into Linux, blow away the, all the partitions on the drive, and then use the Dell recovery you know, disk to, to get it up and running. So fine. So we did that. And Wi-Fi wouldn't work because even though we used the Dell recovery thing, it, it didn't see, you know, wasn't seeing the drivers there. So we were going to have to download those. And you know, it wasn't quite treating the display right. Things didn't look right. And I looked at my son and I said, you know, when we booted into that Linux live thing, man, everything worked great. It was smooth. It felt comfortable. And I said, do you care if this has Windows on it or Linux? He's like, no. He's like, I like that Linux environment better. Fine. Booted from the Windows or from the Linux thing, blew away the partition again, installed Linux, done. The machine's up and running. And I have to say, if you are a Mac user, which you probably are if you're listening to the show, but not necessarily, and you need to repurpose an older laptop I highly recommend Ubuntu Linux. It, it from a coming from a Mac user's perspective, it is far more comfortable and intuitive and predictable an environment. It uses the GNOME desktop, which is a, you know a graphical interface, just like we have on the Mac. We have a graphical interface for Unix called Mac OS 10 or Mac OS now. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, and it's very similar with a dock. And the, the way you configure things and all of that is far more Mac-like than, than Windows is. And it works great. And it picked up all the drivers on this thing. This computer even has like a little touch screen. And it, it's one of those laptops that folds over and can be sort of, sort of become a tablet. As soon as you do that, Linux pops up a virtual keyboard on the screen if you need it. It's super smart and intuitive and it just works. And, uh, and we've been very happy with it. And here's the thing that pulls it all together, which is sort of mind-blowing, but it's exactly how it's supposed to work. That USB stick that I created with Linux on it to do all this will happily boot my Macs too. 
right into that same flavor of Linux. So you could put this on your Macs, but the cool thing is you could use this to pull data off your Macs, just like I pulled data off of this Windows machine with one big, huge, major asterisk. And that's that because up until 14 days ago, Apple had not released the specs for APFS, there is no baked in Linux support for reading APFS there there. So your newer drives uh, or your newly converted drives will not be readable by Linux without using something called APFS fuse, uh, which works. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a open source driver to read APFS. It's only read only now, but that, that might be all you need. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Pretty crazy, huh, John? <clears throat> yeah. What Linux, do you think? I like it. Yeah, I like Linux. I, you know, oh, the, I, da- I dabbled with it many years ago in in the workplace, and uh, yeah, and we actually uh, did um, what is it called? And actually, they they at some point based a product. Uh, they used the uh, Intel Atom uh, board mm. and ran it with uh, they ran it with Linux because it was uh, easier than a. Uh, you know, these uh, embedded development systems here, you know, it was pretty open, pretty inexpensive and uh, well supported. So, yeah, yeah, it really it, you know, for our needs on that computer, it's way better than running Windows, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it just it's smooth. It does everything we need. Predictable. Uh, it, it's amazing how how full featured a default install of this really is. It comes with LibreOffice, which is a great Microsoft office clone, which you can also use on the Mac. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and, and again, it just, all the drivers, everything just worked far better than windows did, which just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, guys. you know, the other thing I notice when, um, when I do run uh, a VM, yeah. when the window or, or whatever is, the the user facing stuff the the graphics mm-hmm. have been updated but once you start digging into configuring stuff the dialogues are the same as they always are <laughs> i don't know if you noticed that i mean what I, do you I, mean? I i don't um, you know like configuring uh networking and stuff like that is that when you start digging into the details you know start drilling down yeah. the dialogues are so while the higher level stuff is prettier, um, wait, the, wait, the wait, wait, you, stuff, you don't get to say this if you haven't done this in the last year, though. Oh, right? I have. I've, oh, I've okay. done it very recently. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Huh. I haven't, cause I haven't experienced that with Ubuntu anyway, not running GNOME. I mean, certainly you can run the terminal and get in and, and do all the same stuff you would do on Mac OS, but I, like in terms of setting right. up, well, I'm, I'm saying this, this is what I've noticed with windows. Oh, like with windows. windows. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It gets very arcane very quickly. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you were talking about Linux and I, I was going to have to disagree that my just based on my experience, it's it's been so robust. It's crazy. But yeah, the Windows stuff and uh, it's just so frustrating. Like I don't I don't get it. You know, here I have this bare metal machine and two operating systems to install on it and one is way more robust than the other. And, and that more robust one is, is the one that's, you know, freely developed by the community. So it's crazy, but I'm glad yeah. we have it. it it's great. Really the last good. one, 
the last one that I did use, um, the one that I was I was talking about was um, I think it's it's pronounced Suse Linux, mm-hmm. which is kind of like uh, yeah, it even says here Suse Linux Enterprise, so it's uh, I guess intended for the enterprise. Sure, yeah. Now There's I, a, lot, a lot of flavors out there. I I will I will keep an Ubuntu Live CD in my in my bag now, just as a a way of kind of booting anything, and I'm I probably will build a, a custom one. That allows me to then install this APFS fuse so that I can read anything that that I boot it to, which would be really, really handy. So for those of you consultants out there, sh- surely have this in your bag. I mean, it'll you know, if you if you have a Mac, which you probably do download the the ISO from Ubuntu, we'll put a link in the show notes and then download this etcher tool to burn the ISO from your Mac and you're good to go. So it's crazy. It's crazy. Good stuff, though, and uh, I appreciate everybody's help and all that good stuff with it. But let's get back to the Mac stuff, shall we, John? Shirley. Shirley. Stop calling me Shirley. Yes. Uh, Abdullah writes in and says, I upgraded to Mojave the weekend of its release from High Sierra on my uh, 2017 MacBook Pro. And it was running High Sierra flawlessly. Immediately following the upgrade, my keys were unresponsive when trying to type my login. I got them to work by pressing either control or option and typing in desired things. Uh, He says, since then, I have found Mojave to be slow to load on this machine and often briefly unresponsive or sluggish upon awakening. Often on awakening, I get the beach ball and finally have to do a hard shutdown on the machine as the machine remains unresponsive. This has become a not uncommon event at least once every other day, almost daily. Even when up and running, apps seem to load slower and everything seems to take longer on Mojave. I'm not seeing anything untoward in iStat menus or activity monitor, and I'm not aware uh, that this is being reported elsewhere, but wondered if you have heard this. He says, my concern is that this may not be Mojave specific and could presage worse to come if there is some corrupted system file that needs to be dealt with. So this is uh this is kind of an interesting thing because we've we've heard from some others. In fact, I'm going to share Bruce's tip now too and then maybe circle back around to Abdullah. So, uh Bruce shares, he says uh he says, uh, in the last Mac Geek Cab, Dave, you mentioned that you found a different configuration when erasing a drive as APFS, as opposed to allowing High Sierra or Mojave to do that conversion from HFS Plus and the resulting blobs or slabs were different. That's true. Says on my MacBook Pro 15, I was having constant crashes even without anything running after I did my Mojave upgrade on a whim. I thought to erase the SSD, format it with disk utility as APFS from scratch, install Mojave clean, and then migrate my data back in. So far, so excellent. He says, I guess that's a variant on the nuke and pave scheme. But so far, this seems to have made a huge difference for me. Maybe it will help some other Mojave users. And, you know, I'm I'm wondering um, if, in fact, Abdullah, you're having some drive issues here. It's worth running disk utility uh, in a scenario like you're seeing. Uh, it's it's worth running, and even if disk utility doesn't tell you you have any file system corruption, running something like Blackmagic speed test uh, will often will you know it tests the speed of the drive, 
But it, if you see that varying greatly, that can indicate perhaps some issues with the the drive itself. So, you know, uh, I'm, I, with all these conversions and everything, I, I'm, I'm wondering if a, you know, clone the drive, wipe it and come back to it is not a bad idea. Um, you know, it's hard to say, right, John, but that's, you know, what do you think? Yeah, it's a start or, you know, um, Onyx, you know, there may be some, yeah. you know, our, our favorite, our favorite thing to blame everything on is caches could be a, a bad cache or something. I don't Fair. Know. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 I, I saw at least one other person, um, Ted reported this in one of our, was it either the forums or Facebook, but I, yeah. I've seen, uh, at least one other report of people noticing a delay between typing something and, uh, or yeah, I think he said he was getting a, a spinning, you know, the, the spinning beach ball of doom while trying to type stuff, which is uh, annoying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I would say um, I would say try Onyx first. I like that idea, John. That's that's much better than than, you know, even any any thing related to nuke and pave. Try Onyx. Try the black magic thing just to confirm that you don't have oh, no, no. a drive issue. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, John. Yeah. And then what else? Uh, boot up in safe mode. That's always that always clears out some stuff, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. That's right. Yep, yep. So yeah, one, hopefully one of those will fix things up. Cool, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So hopefully that helps. Hopefully that helps. Good stuff. Um. All right. You want to talk about, uh, you want to take us to Chris here, John? I'll take us to Chris. And I think I'm going to abbreviate my reply here, but here's what Chris says. Good morning, guys. How did he know it was morning? <laughs> I have a weird one today. I upgraded to Mojave a week or so ago and subsequently had to renew my SMIME certs as they had expired. I've noticed today that my sent folder contains emails that I can't read, though. They're being sent as encrypted. I have the private key installed here, yet I can't decrypt them. Any ideas? Also, can you explain the process I should be following to renew my certs? I'm a bit confused about deleting old keys, etc., and whether this would make any emails encrypted with the old key as unreadable, etc. Many thanks. And I was going to get into the mechanics of the keys and the certs and stuff, Dave, but I, I don't know if that's really necessary, you think? I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, no, I don't think so. It, um, I, I think it's, well, well, let me, let me start going down the, my reply here and then, you know, maybe at some point, but the thing is, it, it, I, I haven't noticed any problem with, uh, secure emails with Mojave. So, so I don't, Mojave's not the problem here. Um, you know, as far as the keys here, now this, this is where, you know, I wanted to clarify the thing is the uh, private key is, is, your private key has nothing to do with sending encrypted stuff. All right. That's actually um, the recipient's public key. Right. Well, but it does have, to, it doesn't have to do with sending encrypted stuff, but it does have to, it is used when you are signing a message, which often right. happens in tandem with encrypting something, but not Correct. always. Yeah. Correct. But I just wanted to clarify is that the, your private key has nothing to do with the sending someone an encrypted 
right. email. You need their public key, which is in their certificate, right? And then yes. they use their right. private key to decrypt right. it. So I, I just wanted to clarify that point here. But yep. um, so the thing is, you may want to just make sure that you, you know, if if, uh, if encrypted stuff is all of a sudden not showing up, make sure that you have the recipient certificate. They may have to send you an assigned email again to do that, or you could ask them to export it from the uh, from Keychain into a CER file. That's another way. But, you know, it automatically gets added to your Keychain. I think it's typically the login Keychain. So, you know, look in the login Keychain and just make sure that the recipient cert is still in there. Right. It could be damaged. Uh, so that's one possible. But, so, yes, yeah, so I'm glad I did go down this path. Um, so the, it may be damaged or missing missing cert, which is why you can't see it. Um, as far as management, you know, messing with, uh, with certs and, and especially keys, Dave, I would go with, uh, I would go with what, uh, our friend MC hammer used to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seriously, what's that, John? Don't, yeah. can't touch this or don't touch this. I'm sorry. I'm going to modify him. Uh, yeah. I, I he think said that's, a little bit. That's the big takeaway here is, uh, you know, for everybody using email keys, especially these S mime keys, which are built in and uh, fully supported by mail on Mac OS, they're sort of fully supported by mail on iOS, although it's much harder to make that actually work well. Yeah, yeah but it, but they, they do work if you're willing to, you know, hold your mouth just right and hop on one leg or whatever. But um, just because the key is listed in your keychain as expired doesn't mean you don't need it anymore because as John mentioned, this is a key pair. There's a private key and a public key. The public key is the one other people would be using to encrypt messages to you. You are also using that when you send messages based on this key. If I send a message to John, I'm encrypting it with his public key and mine because that way I can read it in the future too because I can't read things encrypted with John's public key, so I have to encrypt it with mine as well. But that also means I need to keep the matching private key for that iteration of my key around forever. If I want to read a message that I encrypted and sent to you, John, from three years ago, I need my private key from three years ago, even though it's expired. That right. So okay. Just, I'm, glad, I'm glad you mentioned that nuance that yeah. it's, uh, yeah, that when you're sending it to someone, you're actually kind of sending it to two people, I guess, <laughs> or encrypting it for two different people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what you said. Um, here's the thing though, is we, uh, then we had a, you know, back and forth, you know, I replied and then Dave got involved and, uh, then, as it turns out, I think I know what the problem is here, Dave, is that Chris said that he had at some point deleted some certificates. And as it turns out, he did not. But but again, oh. the lesson is the lesson is important for from a general sense. You know, we we have this 20 percent rule when we when we talk about things on the show and we really do try to even when we're taking a very you know specific nuanced problem we do try to kind of back it out a little bit so that so that we're sending a message and, and teaching something that's well, he, that's a little more relevant he said in one email that yeah he but he's in the chat room now keys. saying that that he did not oh. yeah and and in no. in further emails he confirmed that he hadn't but again it's it's wholly immaterial the, the lesson here is don't delete your old keys and uh because because of exactly what we discussed yeah yeah 
It's as crazy. far as best practices, so don't delete them. But then here's the other thing that you you should do when you get a certificate, Dave, is to go into Keychain Access, highlight it, and export it to uh, uh, what's a what's called a P12 file. That is your public and private key. That that's your certificate. And I do that every time I get a new certificate is I export it to a P12 file just in case something terrible happens and that that I can re-add it back to my keychain if I need to, if you know it somehow gets damaged or something like that. So I would suggest that for best uh, another part of best practice. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. I agree. Oh yeah. I keep mine in a separate keychain just because it, it, that way the headache is, is completely managed. Yep. I mean, you mentioned another thing. The thing is if, uh, you know, if you have removed some, you may be able to uh, restore an old, uh, um, from an older time machine backup. For sure. And you actually actually gave the path. It's uh, Well, it's home library keychains is where those are going to be. And then, and then you should just mm-hmm. be able to open it up and import those keys or drag them from one keychain to another, even if it's a keychain you've opened from a time machine backup. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, I, you know, right. we use this encrypted email thing. Uh, certainly any message you get from us here at Mac geek, 99% of the time is going to have our public keys attached to it either generally S mine, but if, but we do have PGP keys, they're listed with all the directories. And uh, if you send us an email with your PGP key, we will use that instead of S mime on our reply and all that. But you know, it's not really important to be encrypting email back and forth between us, but it's fun. And so, you know, gives them something more to do when they finally crack the codes in whatever 50 years and get to go back and scour through all the uh, encrypted emails to see what we were up to. It just gives them a little more, uh, mm. gives them a little more noise to filter through. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, you're, you're right, Paul. Um, What's Paul, Paul right about? Sure. Yep. Well, Paul, Paul just a, a clarification here. Yes. All right. So it's just to be clear here what, what I said. And Paul is in our chat room, which is at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Um, I did mean uh, P12 is the file extension when you export it from Keychain Access. But it is technically, and I, I was going to say this, but it, it's technically called a PKCS number 12 file. Right. Public key certificate something, I guess. <laughs> yeah. We'll put a link to the Wikipedia page about it. So cool. All right. Moving on. Uh, listener Wilco has a question. He says, I had the most peculiar experience this past week, but uh, he says, I had downloaded Mojave and started the install. Immediately, the installer put up a notice saying it would not install since the target drive was failing. That's odd. Having not noticed anything disc-related was out of the ordinary. Checked a few tools, and indeed, smart status was failing. It was on my wish list to replace the internal Fusion drive with an SSD anyway, but since I could not decide on an internal or external, I postponed that. Now I was forced to make a decision. I went for an internal one terabyte SSD. That meant I had to do some cleanup, but with that out of the way, I made a carbon copy cloner backup of the cleaned drive. I rebooted from the external hard drive to check whether that worked smart. I knew it should, but I'd never done it before. No, no, that's really smart. When you're going to make a clone boot from it, make sure you're good. He says, everything worked. 
And when I booted from my Carbon Copy Cloner clone, I was pleasantly surprised that Carbon Copy Cloner immediately launched and asked me whether I would like to restore. Not now, but thank you, he says. Next morning, I had my drive replaced with no need to do a data transfer because I already had it. In the evening, I connected everything and now gave Carbon Copy Cloner permission to restore. A couple hours later, everything was back to how I left it the evening before. The big surprise came today as I was working from home and had to use Windows again uh, for work. He says this past six months or so, I think he was doing it inside. Uh, I can't tell if it was boot camp or. Oh, no, it's Parallels. He's, he was using Windows inside Parallels. He says, this past six months or so, I had very frequent uh, intermittent freezes, like every two minutes or so. Windows applications would not respond for five to 15 seconds and then would continue again. This problem is now completely gone. I had done a lot of searching, but never found anything that could explain what was happening. My conclusion now is that it was disk related. I suspect Parallels mechanism for dynamic disk usage was the culprit that it doesn't seem to work well with a failing disk. So let that be a data point for all of us. It says now it's time to install Mojave and find out the goodies and all that. There's one question left, which is not related, but it's a good question. That's why I included this in the show here. He says, can I simply rename my internal drive, which is now called Mac OS, to something of my own choosing? He says, Rohan is what I would prefer since I have all my drives named after entities uh, of, in, uh, of Middle Earth places. He says, uh, which I like. You got to come up with some sort of system. You know, you folks know me. Miles Davis songs is, uh, is my current and, and longstanding uh, naming scheme for hard drives. And when I run out of those, I will come up with something else. <laughs> but thankfully, Mr. Davis was quite prolific. So uh, anyway, yeah, uh, you can name, rename your hard drive. And really, you should, shouldn't have any issue renaming it at any time. The way Mac OS keeps track of things, uh, most apps store their file paths and stuff relative to just boot volume without being obsessed about the name. There might be an app or two that you encounter that gets upset and says, I can't find whatever. Uh, if that's the case, just, you know, just repoint it. But for the most part, uh, if things are on the boot drive, it, apps don't care what the name is. They don't need to care. They just, you know, look at it relative to the top of the drive and they're good to go. Right. Yeah. Well, they use something, I think it's called a UUID, Universal Unique Identifier, to, mm. to identify a drive. Right? They do, but 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 I don't even think they go that far. They just look at, you know, slash uh, home library mm. preferences. Right. I mean, it just, it looks in your home folder and doesn't really care what mm. the path to that it, it it's happy taking a relative path is is what it is usually I, yeah i don't think most apps care about the uuid uh in terms of in terms of that i could be wrong but i i always thought it was just mm. you know looked in what let the operating system tell me what the home folder is and i will store my preferences mm. or files there that's that so i think yeah, yeah. <sighs> Well, that was interesting. I think this is the first time I've ever heard of smart actually. Yeah, <laughs> helping. What was intended? Yeah, no kidding. Well, it's interesting the that the OS actually checked that that's an early installer checked. I think that's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, all right, let's go to let's go to Tannel here. Uh, a quick one, but a good one. Tannel. Asks, he's, or offers, he says, I have a tip concerning Apple support. 
If your country does not have an Apple store and you happen to visit a country where there is one, it's always a good idea to make a quick visit and talk about any annoying problems that you might have that the certified Apple support in your country refused to deal with. And he offers, by example, he says, my left AirPod was not glued together properly. It was slightly misaligned and there was a sharp edge. Since everybody else did not have this quote unquote problem, I went to my local certified Apple dealer. The support staff informed me that everything was within margin and that Apple would not change it. While I was traveling in Italy this summer, though, I made a quick visit to the Apple store there and showed them my left AirPod. 20 minutes later, I walked out with a new left AirPod that was perfectly aligned. The great part was that unlike my <clears throat> local support personnel, the Apple genius did not think I was weird or pedantic or Mr. Monk for being annoyed by the misaligned AirPod. Now I have a question that you might not know the answer to, but I'm sure in your audience. No, we have an answer. He says, is there any way to contact Apple support directly on issues like this? Yeah, ab absolutely. There is. Um, there's a couple of ways. One, you can call on the phone. You can you can get Apple Care on the phone, but you can also do it with uh, online. Either you know at Apple's website, you can chat with them there, or using the Apple Support app on your phone, you can chat with them there, and then also you know go to a phone call if you if you wish. And then, so that's where I would start. Uh, if that doesn't get you anywhere, th at that point, hopefully you have a case number at the very least. And with a case number and lack of satisfaction, you can call Apple's corporate office and ask to speak to Apple customer relations. Those are the customer service ninjas that Apple employs to deal with uh, cases that, that don't get solved the right way. Uh, they, they, may, they may or may not give you satisfaction uh, depending on what your desires are versus what Apple's rulings are but i have many times had them overturn you know a uh a dismissed case uh when it's obvious that when you kind of take a look at it you know oh yeah no we should help you with this kind of thing it just falls outside of the general scope of things but but don't you don't have to start there just start with with apple support either in the app or on the website and um and you should be good to go so yeah absolutely absolutely and i i think that's available in all countries john I'm, um, I think it's always possible to get in touch with Apple somehow, somehow. Sure. I, I guess. Right. Oh, I, I don't know. Last time I had to, I think, uh, yeah, I did it through, um, where did I do it through? I think I may have, I think actually if you go, yeah. So, so at least on the Mac, if you go to the, uh, if you go to the about box and you click on the service tab, it'll, uh, It'll give you that, that that's a good place to start, at least if you're on the Mac. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can definitely yeah. go right there. Yeah, it has a uh, check my service and support. So it'll tell you if you're under warranty, uh, show my service and repair options. So, yeah, that's uh, that's probably the that's the best place to go on the Mac. Yep. Yep. And as you mentioned on, on iOS, the uh, support app is. Uh, and that is a separate way. app. You need to go to the app store and download that app. It's not just part of iOS. At least I don't think it wasn't with iOS 11. Uh, and I think it's still a separate app with iOS 12. Uh, well, uh, the, the easy way to test. You're is, right. Yeah. It's called Apple support. It's yeah, just I, called I, Apple support. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the easy way to look is, is search for Apple support on your phone. And if you don't find it, go to the app store. Good to go. It is free. They don't charge for the app. So that's good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That'd be kind of silly. Yeah. 
Um, I want to address something here. Listener David wrote in and uh, and sent us a link to the article. There was a thing earlier this week that came out where uh, they talked where it talked about this software lock, right? That would uh, if in in Mac OS and new to Mojave, I believe, uh, where the computer wouldn't run. It's possible for Apple to keep a computer from running if the 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 serial numbers of the parts don't quite match, right? And uh, it, it, so this makes repairs potentially very difficult, right? Because if you uh, if you don't uh, if you can't swap out, say, the motherboard without Apple having done it, that would be a bad thing. Uh, and so the reports were, you know, Apple makes your MacBook inoperative if you get it fixed at local repair shops. However, and this could be true, is the reality. It's it, like this switch exists, but it's not turned on yet. And perhaps it won't be turned on ever. Um, the folks at iFixit immediately, because it's what they do, they ran out. And they went and bought a new MacBook and started swap, actually a new MacBook Pro, I think, and started swapping things around and had no trouble whatsoever uh, with running these machines. They, uh, they said they went and bought a new 2018 13-inch MacBook Pro, disassembled it, traded displays with their teardown unit from the summer. They said, to our surprise, the displays and MacBooks fun functioned normally in every combination we tried. We also updated to Mojave and swapped logic boards with same positive results. So it looks like this kill switch is not activated yet, which is good. Thank goodness. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just wanted to address that because we got several emails from it. Thank you, David, for uh, you were the first that at least the first that I saw. But um, but yeah, thank you for for that. So good. Good. Everything's OK. It's good. Yeah. No On the other hand, I remember re I remember reading something also that they actually did something to make the the uh, right to repair crowd happy is that um before. I think they they had a, a expensive machine to calibrate the touch ID on on the uh, phones that that have that, and I, I think they've backed away from from that requirement now. Mm. Right. Well. Yeah. Well, yeah, no. Yeah. I remember. I remember yeah. actually when I got my last one repaired because I dropped it. Um, I mean, it took them like over an hour to to fix it because I came back and they're like, "Well, yeah, we're still uh, we're still calibrating it." So they got a magic machine. Right, right. Fascinating. Fascinating. It's good. Mm. Uh you want to take us to Eric, John, while we're while we're kind of talking about hardware here? Sure. Because I learned something. Cool. Uh, hold on, wait, where are you? Eric. Here is Eric. Okay. Hello, my podcast buddies. <laughs> Yesterday, I got my first kernel panic on my late 2015 Retina iMac. Tonight, I got it again. Attached are the details. I noticed this in both kernel panics. So he sent us the uh, kernel panic uh, document. But um, he noticed this, this one line uh, appeared. 
and uh, blah, 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 there's a lot of stuff in here, but the uh, the key part, Dave, is, um, and I think this will uh, point to his problem, is um, I-O-N-V-M-E family hmm. was part of the path of the, uh, of the code that, uh, that crashed. And his question is, what is I-O-N-V-M-E family? What preliminary steps should I take? Now, at first, Dave, I thought it was non-volatile, maybe had something to do with non-volatile memory, NVM, right? Well, it does, but not the NVRAM or PRAM that we would would normally associate with, with that term. Yeah. But um, actually, uh, after doing some digging, I found out what this is, Dave. NVME is non-volatile memory express. What is that, you may ask? It's an interface specification used to communicate efficiently with an SSD on a PCIe bus. Essentially a, a faster replacement for the whole SATA concept that we've been dealing with for years. Correct. And actually, when, it, when I did some searching, I, I think Intel came up with it. And yeah. they actually have a video saying, well, you know, this it, it's a better way to communicate. Or it, it it's a faster way to communicate faster, with an SSD. For sure. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. I mean, SATA, SATA works, but... And, and the thing is, they... Um, and there, there's a driver that supports the standard. Now, my guess, Dave, is that if you're getting a kernel panic that has to do with that, I'd say it's either a problem with maybe the interface hardware or maybe your SSD. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to point... I, I'm going to... Yeah, so my suggestion was, you know, check the drive for damage with this utility or something a bit more sophisticated. Um, speaking of smart, you may uh, want to get a, you know, more sophisticated utility that looks at some of the, uh, you know, smart settings to see if any of them are, you know, uh, growing at a, at a unreasonable rate. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's definitely a SSD hardware either SSD hardware or the interface uh, related. Right. And right. I'm yeah. Stick with that. I would, I would, uh, yeah, it's hard to know remotely. I mean, it drives tend to fail more often than their interfaces do. So that's why my gut would say it's probably the drive, but, but we've all seen interfaces fail too. So you never know. You never know. Speaking of things that fail, a good reminder at any time of year, uh, listener Tim writes in, and uh, and told us a story about how he said, uh, guys, I got caught. I returned home last night to find we had no Internet connectivity. My daughter said there was a bad storm that rolled through and we didn't lose power. But there was a really close lightning strike. And that's what caused or that's what happened right before the Internet went out. Uh, he says, my daughter had tried a few basics on her own with no success. He says, my Wi-Fi router and cable modem are three separate devices. I saw that I had Wi-Fi and had an IP address, so I knew my router was working. He says, I immediately went to my cable modem. Sure enough, no lights, not even a power light. The cable modem is plugged into a UPS, or at least its power cable is. So I unplugged it and plugged it into a known working outlet. Still no lights. I'm pretty confident that a surge from lightning came through the coax cable. Uh, he says... Uh, and then he talks about several other things. It, he's totally right. Uh, more often than not, surges will come in over DC entries to your house as opposed to AC entries. So while it is certainly good 
to protect yourself from an AC standpoint. You also want to protect yourself from a DC standpoint, because that's often, especially where lightning power surges will come in. Take a look at your home and think about where any wires are outside that come in. Coax is one phone, maybe another, depending on where your phone originates from. If it comes from your cable modem, well, then no, that's coming from within your house. Uh, Ethernet, uh, you know, I've talked many times about my direct buried Ethernet cable outside. I've learned lots about when and why to protect Ethernet. But uh, but for most of us, the thing we really need to protect is coax. And he asked, he says, I know you've talked about coaxial surge protectors over the years. Uh, is there anything special to think about? And and really, the answer is no. They all seem to work uh, fairly consistently and the same. Uh, if your UPS has one, use it. More often than not, that's going to be just fine. A lot of UPSs or even power strips will have two coax ports on them. And one is for, you know, goes to the outside, one goes to the inside, and it's there to protect you. If you don't have that on Amazon for about eight bucks, I think you can get one. And so I will put a link to, to that in the show notes for you all. But it is definitely uh, a thing that you want to have for eight bucks. It's sort of foolish to 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 play the game that Tim played. Uh, and Tim knows that. We all know that. Uh, it's just how it goes sometimes. So uh, coaxial surge protectors are definitely a thing. And I've, I've, I have them now. And the reason that I have them is because I've been in exactly the same situation as Tim and blown up things like cable modems and, uh, and other coax devices. So just get one, put it in line and you should be good to go. Uh, Amazon, the one I found on Amazon is now down. It's now $6 and 15 cents. Just make sure you get, make sure you understand, uh, whether you need two males or a male and a female on either end, just depending on how you're going to put it in line with things. But otherwise, yeah, it's good to go. Do you have one, John? You know, I should probably get one. Yeah. I told you I, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I have surge suppressors for, uh, for all my, electrical stuff yeah yeah and i actually have a uh and one of my strips has one for the phone line because i still have a phone line believe it or not sure does your <laughs> phone line actually come from outside right your phone line is is not generated by your your uh your isp it's not from your cable company right it's not it's oh not yes it your... is no i dumped uh so I had AT&T up until recently yeah. and then I dumped them. And so, yeah, so the phone line is now coming out of my, uh, cable out of your modem. cable modem. Okay. So you don't need a surge protector on that as long as you have one on your cable modem. And as long as your phone line doesn't go outside uh, anywhere. Uh, well, I mean, what if lightning hit, what if lightning hit my cable modem? Well, as long as your cable modem is protected, as long uh, as the I coax, see. right. It, you know, I, and that's why I said before, just kind of take an abstract look what is coming into my house from the outside? You've got AC power, okay? Right, right, and, right. And you've got coax. Now, for me, I also have Ethernet because I've chosen to put Ethernet outside and and learned that lesson many times the hard way. I know, you're right, you're right. Right? You're right. Um, it, you know, I'll probably go to, you know, probably today I'll go to uh, Home Depot. Uh, that's where I got all my other stuff. I'm, I'm sure they have something like that. I, they might, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or if not, while you're at Home Depot, just buy this one from Amazon and, and it'll be there by Tuesday, you know, so you're good to go. It's just, it's good to have. 
uh, you know, it's uh, it, it, certainly it's not the end of the world. He was able to upgrade his cable modem and he's fine again, but it's a pain in the neck when this happens. So, yeah, it's good. All right. Where are we here? You know, let's talk a little bit about uh, one of my favorite topics, which is routers. I, the first thing I'm going to say is the mesh world is a we are about to get to what I'm going to call mesh 2.0. And by that, I mean, there are lots of products coming out that will add mesh type capabilities and really kind of smart mesh type capabilities to existing routers and existing networks uh this week netgear just came out with their uh their uh, for a firmware update for a lot of their tri-band extenders that add uh that really kind of turn them into mesh points where they will do smart roaming which is very interesting, but they'll use a protocol called 802.11k to even communicate back with your router and your devices and do some smart things and all of that. So you can, if say you're in a scenario where either you have a router that you like and you don't want to give it up, or you have a router that you can't give up, like you're in a Fios scenario and Verizon makes it difficult to give up your router. Not impossible, but certainly not easy. Or you like the one you get from your ISP, whatever it is. There's lots of these options coming out. Synology is uh, Synology just released their new uh, firmware for their router called SRM 1.2. Uh, it adds lots of things, but one of the big features is it prepares that router to now be the origin of and the and the management interface for an entire mesh network. And uh, and they've got some new hardware. I think it's the MR twenty two hundred AC. They're calling it is the mesh router uh, or mesh points. I guess you you buy these things and and they're just mesh points and you put them around. That's coming out. I think later this week or something. Uh, but uh, but it all gets very very interesting because you d you don't necessarily have to give up what you have to get mesh down the road. So th that like that's cool uh, to me. I will say one thing for those of you that are run, running Synology routers at, with SRM 1.2, I've installed it. It's working. Assuming you can still hear me, John, uh, then <laughs> we know that it's working, but um, it, they, they added some, they added something called safe access, which does parental controls and things like that. It totally messes with DNS on the router. Uh, so much so that most people have just turned it off within about an hour of, uh, of of installing it. So if you are a Synology router user, safe safe access is a new package slash app on the router. Go into the web interface, turn it off. There is another new package that's not installed by default called threat protection. This replaces intrusion protection. Intrusion protection used to slow down your router like crazy. This new threat protection thing, magically, they've done something or found something that uh, they were able to make it super efficient. I'm able to get gigabit speeds passed across the, the, the router, no problem and still have this threat protection in place. So I highly recommend turning that on. So threat protection on safe access off until future notice. With that, we had a question, John, about DNS and routers and things like that. And I figured this is a perfect time to answer that question. And it came from listener Scott. He says, can you clear something up 
for me. Uh, I have a Google Wi-Fi setup, so a mesh router in the house, and it has automatically set the DNS for itself to Google's standard of 8.8.8.8. All of the devices in the house, including my MacBook Pro, are connected wirelessly. The only thing that's connected via Ethernet uh, is to the cable modem is the main Google Wi-Fi puck that serves as our main base station slash router and speeds are great. So far, so good. However, he says, I'm confused about something. In the MacBook Pro's networking preference pane, the DNS tab shows a couple of other DNS servers in the list. And it, sure enough, he it, it, it lists two. Um, and he says, uh, from what I can discern from your regular discussions, as well as what I read, these DNS servers are irrelevant because the servers that are listed in the Wi-Fi router take precedence. Is that correct? And then he asked, would it be better if I deleted these from network system preference pane? And would that mean that there would be somewhat less of a lag because the laptop wouldn't be trying to connect to different ones? So here's the thing. Generally speaking, you want to have your computers asking your router for DNS lookups, and then you want your router to be doing lookups from that on behalf of the whole house or office or whatever you have. When Scott looked in his system preferences networking and, and dug in, in his case, to Wi-Fi and then chose advanced and looked at DNS, he saw two DNS servers. One was an IPv4 address, which for him is 192.168.86.1. That is a local address, very presumably the address of his Google Wi-Fi router. And then the other is a much longer address that uh, is an IPv6 address, also the address of his Google Wi-Fi router. This is because when your Mac gets an IP address from your router, the router also most often uh, passes along preferred DNS server addresses. This is a good thing. This actually makes it more efficient because if another, if, let's say you want to go visit www.apple.com, right? When you do that on your first device, uh, your device, your, you know, in this case, let's say your Mac, your Mac asks the router, I need the address of www.apple.com. The router says, I don't have that. It goes out to the internet. It gets it. It pulls it in and it gives it to your Mac. Now, when you try to go to www.apple.com on your iPhone, the iPhone asks the router, I need the address for it. It says, cool, I have it. Here it is. It doesn't have to go out on the internet, way more efficient. So, and there's a cascade of this caching that happen, happens. The IP, the, the DNS server that your router asks also is caching things. So we don't always have to go all the way back up to the source to get the IP address. And that makes it more efficient. So in 99.9% .9 of all cases, you want to let your router assign the DNS server to your devices and you don't want to mess with it. That's my advice. What do you think, John? I agree with that. <clears throat> now, you can change your DNS server on your router to, to one that is either more preferable to you or more efficient or faster or whatever. I, you know, a lot of us choose to use something called open DNS where we can sort of configure filters. Uh, now that routers have some of these filters, you know, you can choose to do that locally as opposed to elsewhere. As I said, Synology's new safe access mm -hmm. thing, maybe not so much quite yet because it's sort of messing with things a little. But um, but yeah, yeah. And, and, and it seems like the new hotness is a DNS server that Cloudflare runs at, right? Isn't it Cloudflare at 1.1.1.1? Um, or is that, I always forget. 
Is that Intel's? No, that's Cloudflare's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Had it right. So. Uh, but you are right is some of those services, um, some of these add-on services uh, do funky things with the DNS. I remember the last time I did a DNS bench. Yep. Uh, it came up and said, um, something's weird with your DNS. I, I can't do this. As it turns out, Eero Plus. Right. Um, uh, it does a lot of useful things, uh, but it, it also changes the way the DNS behaves. So some tools will uh, will complain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I like the way Eero Plus does it, by the way. Um, it, you know, I, I think they're doing it right. As, compo- as opposed to the way Synology implemented theirs. Um, Eero, well, well, so here's my big complaint about Synology's. Synology's doesn't allow local DNS lookups to happen. Um, as soon as you turn on safe okay. access, like normally most routers now, and this is something oh, I'm so happy because 10 years ago, no routers did this unless you built your own. But now most routers, if you, uh, if you go in on your Mac to, you know, system preferences sharing, whatever the name of your Mac is there. So the one I'm on here is called iMac studio. Cause that's what I've named it. I can go to any of my other Macs in the house and say, you know, either connect via screen sharing and type in the name iMac studio. I don't have to know it's IP address. I just type in the name. And because my router assigned it an address, my router knows that that address is related to the name iMac studio and so, boom, I can say, you know, SSH to iMac Studio or, you know, screen share to iMac Studio and boom, I get here. That is something we call local DNS lookups, right? Local, local DNS. Uh, very handy. Very, very. Once you start using it, you don't want to give it up. And, uh, and it took me all of about 15 seconds with SRM to make me realize that local DNS had been shut off. And then it took another 20 minutes to realize what it was that turned it off. And it was this safe access thing. Thankfully, actually, somebody else figured it out on the Synology forums. But um, but Eero Plus does some DNS monkeying, as you noted, but at least they don't they do it past the local DNS point. Right. They've just shifted it slightly so that local DNS still works. It's not getting in the way of that. So that's 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 why I say they do it right. But do you have problems with the Eero Plus? Oh, no, actually, um Actually, the the only problem I have is that I'd like more detail. Ah, fair, sure. It sure. gives you a it gives you a weekly report telling you what sort of threats it uh it masked yeah. or, or prevented, but it doesn't go into detail. It's like, well, I prevented you know this malware. I'm like, well, where? <laughs> so I will say, <laughs> where did this? I go? They had the malware. Where did I go? Uh, they have yeah, they have like three categories of of threats, and all they do is tell you the number of times. Right. So I will I will counter that by saying and and neither is is best it's just what's best for you Synology's new as I said I turned off safe access which is their parental controls portion but this new threat protection package works great so I've got that on and I spent the last 24 hours getting crazy notifications about oh did you know that this device is doing this I even got a load of notification for uh uh what, what did they call it, it was like non-threatening activity. It's like, why are you notifying me if it's not a threat? So I had to go in and tweak all of these settings so that, and there are thousands of switches that I can turn to set exactly what I want. Now that's cool. Cause I have one device. My, I think I have pilot Pete's transporter here from connected data. And it was like, it, it was causing 
all sorts of alerts to throw. And I could say, you know what? Stop caring about those types of alerts from that specific device, but worry about everything else on my network, right? So it's how much management do you want to do? And finally, I tempered this thing down to where I'm only getting, say, one alert per day now, which is nice. And I'm hoping to get it to the point where I get maybe none until there's actually a problem I need to worry about. Like, I don't really, I like, I want it to drop packets when someone's trying to log into my, you know, any of my devices with a default username and password, like that's great. I don't necessarily need an alert about that because there's nothing I'm going to do. It's like, you did your job. Kudos. If you didn't do your job, I wouldn't know. So this is great. So I, I get it though. Like, you know, you think you want more information until you have it. And then it's like, Ooh, let's meet somewhere in the middle, please. <laughs> so anyway, that's how I go. Any other thoughts, my friend? Yeah, that local thing. I always thought that that was, hmm. I love local DNS. It's pretty good. Is it, D- is it DNS though? It, yes. So there is also a way to do that with, with like Bonjour, Apple's okay, that, zero that was, conf that's, thing. Okay, that's what I was thinking because I tried looking up one of my machines with a, with a DNS utility and it didn't give me the IP address. Interesting. So. Yeah. It, um, but yeah, lo- so it local, D- maybe I, I was pretty sure Eero plus worked fine with local DNS when I tested it. Um, cause I've got that running over at my dad's place and it, it worked great. He was able to connect or I was able to connect to, you know, all his other devices. It never got in the way of that, but, um, okay. Yeah. I'll have to, uh, yeah. all right. I'll have to fiddle some more because yeah, based, based on at least what dig says, it's like, huh? I don't know. What, I don't know who that is. The way, the way I, um, the way I test for it is I do, I use the NS lookup tool, which is, I know is an old tool, but, um, I will type in the IP address. I'll do it. I'll do it reverse. I'll type NS lookup space. And then the IP address of say my iMac in the office. And when I do that, I get back an answer from my local DNS server that says iMac office is what matches to this. It's like, okay, cool. Now I know the name. Now I can use that. And, uh, and it matches. So, so try that. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I that did, doesn't work. Okay. No, it doesn't, doesn't seem to be working. All right. Well then but, turn um, off Euro plus and see if that does it. I thought, I thought Euro plus worked with yep. local DNS, but yeah, there you go. Yeah. But bonjour is a, yeah. The, the thing is bonjour is, is the other, uh, or zero configuration. I guess right. what they call it. That's the other way that you can, uh, discover things on your local network. Yeah. Dot local and, and that sort of thing. Yep. 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 Well, as fun as this is, all good things, my friend, must come to an end. But that's okay, because it uh, it leaves us all wanting a little bit more. And good news, we'll be back next week. That's how it's going to be. So fun, fun, Mac Geekab stuff. Right? Good? Until your daddy takes the T-Bird away. <laughs> you can fun, send fun, us fun. your favorite lyrics, too. Feedback at MacKeyGab.com. Yeah, the other option is you could send it to feedback at MacKeyGab.com. Or lastly, feedback at MacKeyGab.com. Unless you're a premium subscriber, in which case premium at MacKeyGab.com is the place that you can send it all to. Any of you are welcome to call us and leave a message at 224-888-GEEK, which John is... 433 Five. Make sure you get signed up over here with our Mac Geekab forums at macgeekab.com slash forums. We would love to have you there. That is the new home 
Great stuff happening there. I've got it cross-posting to our Facebook page as promised at the end of last week. Probably continue to tweak that over the week. And then, yeah, we will be sunsetting the Facebook group. I know change is hard. I apologize for that. But trust me when I say this is better. Uh, I want to thank all of you for listening because you're awesome. I want to thank all our premium subscribers for subscribing because you're awesome. I want to thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you because they're awesome. I want to thank our sponsors. As I mentioned during the show, we have Ring at ring.com slash MGG, textexpander.com slash podcast, Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com, Barebones Software at barebones.com. Good stuff. LinkedIn.com slash MGG. Yeah. Fun. John, please, my friend, share with me your favorite advice. Um, don't take wooden nickels. No, no, no. Oh, that is that good one. advice. I like that. <laughs> I think I have one somewhere. They did make them at one point. You took one? Oh, so you're speaking from experience when you say that. You can say don't take wooden nickels because you've got one and you know not to take them. That is Mm -hmm. helpful. Any other life experience that you might be able to draw upon and sort of synthesize into perhaps a three-word piece Mm -hmm. of advice? You bet. And those three words are don't get caught. Made up.